I don't like the label Islamic debt. I don't like Sharia uh, lending. I don't like these labels. As soon as you use the words sure. debt and lending, it has moved away from the intent of trade. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. With me, I have a very special guest today, Haris Irfan, the author of the famous, the one and only Heaven's Bankers, which I think is like the oldest, you know, Islamic book in, not probably not the oldest, but the recent classic uh, in the Islamic finance pantheon. I, I would say the only one that's sort of written by an industry insider. The rest are academics and yeah. politicians. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's quite a funny read as well, isn't it? It's quite a bouncy read. I think um, I'll, I haven't succeeded, but I guess the inspiration came from people like Michael Lewis and Malcolm Gladwell. How do you make a, a book that's readable by everybody who doesn't have a specialist training? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And so, and Harris, you you formerly founded, um, you were co-founder of the Islamic finance team at Deutsche. You worked at Barclays and a number of other areas. Um, and what we want to, I want to talk about with you in this uh, session that we've got with you is all sorts of your insights. Uh, having been in Islamic finance, in, in banking, uh, what you learned and what you think the, the failures of Islamic banking and finance are, what are the successes, where we need to be heading, what does a truly Islamic financial system look like? I know you're, you're really into your crypto and you know, alternative monetary policy and definitely want to get into all of that. But first, why don't we just start with how it all started? You know, yeah. What do you do in, in your career and yeah. how did it work? Yeah. Well, I thought I would be observing stars in a laboratory from Palo Alto. And I know we've talked about this before. So I did physics at university and um, astrophysics was my, was my passion. And I realized I wasn't as smart as the other physicists around me. So what did I do next? I looked at interesting jobs that weren't in physics and uh, working in the city was one of them. Um, so I started working in the city in the early 90s and um, found my way uh, firstly into a small British merchant bank doing project finance. And back then the all the noise was about the Private Finance Initiative, which is a government-public-private partnership, uh, sort of semi-privatization. That's where I cut my teeth. Uh, and then joined Deutsche Bank, uh, and they sent me to Dubai in 2001. And um, when I was sitting in Dubai as the first Deutsche Banker on the ground, a lot of clients came to us and said, well, it's wonderful that you're here, but can you do these deals on a Sharia-compliant basis? And being investment bankers, we... We blag for a living. Uh, and we said, yeah, sure, we know how to do that, but we didn't. Um, and we sat down at the feet of the scholars. And one of the scholars was a very famous individual uh, called Sheikh Hussein Hamid Hassan. Uh, and uh, essentially, he was the grandfather of the modern Islamic finance industry. So um, Deutsche Bank uh, did a huge amount of innovation in those days. This is the early 2000s. And there was a huge uh, um, exponential growth in the Islamic finance industry. And I would like to think that uh, Deutsche Bank was the primary reason for that because we invented products that had never been addressed before. So now all of a sudden Islamic investors could have access to all sorts of asset classes with all sorts of different payoff structures. Uh, and we created our equivalent of the Manhattan Project. So if you know in World War II, the Allied scientists gathered in the Los Alamos Desert to create the atom bomb before Hitler. And the power that they were harnessing was, could be used for good or bad. Mm. Um, and um, I think we had our own version of this Manhattan Project because we created this black box that uh, was able to access uh, exposure to any asset class in the world. If you wanted, think of the most haram thing you can, like pork belly futures, <laughs> right? right? Okay. And we could replicate the return from that using this black box. It sounds insane. It, in retrospect, it was insane. 
Uh, and of course, that technology was abused. It wasn't intended to be. At that time, uh, the big banks had started hiring uh, young practicing Muslims, very technically capable, uh, and they were ideologically aligned with the vision of an Islamic economic model. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were able to innovate so well, was because we were technically capable and we believed in what we were doing. We were mm. buyers of our own product. Yeah. All good things must come to an end. And despite doing lots of funky stuff and, and innovating and creating new product, you know, the sales culture of an investment bank is a very aggressive place. And once they have a generic fatwa for a particular type of technique, they may well abuse that. And they did abuse that. And we ended up, against my wishes, uh, issuing products that were, frankly, highly dubious, uh, even though they had a generic fatwa associated with them. And you're talking about Sharia wrappers here, right? Correct. Yes, exactly. It's a total return swap, what we call a double white. Uh, and this was, as I say, a black box. Money comes in, money goes out, and somehow it's transformed in the middle. Um, there are plenty of other things I can say about that, but we'll, we'll come to that in a while. I came back from uh, Dubai. I, I moved to Barclays for a couple of years um, where I was head of Islamic products. And I came back to the UK in 2012, uh, worked as a um, co-head of investment banking for Rasmala Group. Um, and then six years ago, I left the Islamic finance, or rather the Islamic banking industry, thoroughly disillusioned with what I'd seen Having believed that I could change something from within, I have uh, reconciled myself to the fact that it cannot be changed from within, no matter how hard you try, uh, and that there must be a better way of doing this. Uh, so that's what I've been doing for the last six years, is um, focusing on small grassroots, real economy, risk-sharing projects, which by definition are halal and Sharia compliant. Uh, and we'll come on to that later, I guess. That's really, really fascinating as, a, as an arc, because I think you were there right at the inception of how, where, where all this stuff kicked off. I want to ask you, what do you think was the reason that led to uh, Deutsche and, and I guess others then joined the, the fray in being quite innovative and coming up with new stuff that hasn't, I don't think, been uh, matched yeah. since certainly in the, in the corporate world. Every vision, every innovative project needs a champion. And we had that champion at Deutsche. So there's a gentleman called Yassin Buhara that we call the godfather of the Middle East. And uh, you know, one day he decided that, why are we not addressing this market of two billion people? Um, he's a very senior individual. He was in the Exco, the executive committee of Deutsche Bank, which is the most senior management just below board level. Uh, so they dictate the strategy of the bank. Uh, they execute it. And um, I was um, somebody who was sent away to this far-off land to establish this office out in Dubai. Uh, and essentially, I was, I was one of his, his people to go out there and make it happen. So without that champion within the bank who talks at the highest levels, we know, for example, other stories like Iqbal Khan, who had the ear of the CEO and chairman of HSBC, and hence why he formed the biggest brand in the world, HSBC Amana. Um, you know, these are things that you need to have happen. When the UK government issued its sovereign sukuk, there was a champion in British government, which was Baroness Varsi, who was uh, you know, helpful in pushing that through. So you always need that individual. It's a shame that today we don't really have those individuals within the largest organizations. We don't have those individuals within government, certainly not in the UK anyway. You have in places like Malaysia, yes, but not here in the UK. And that's why I think the industry has stagnated. Uh, we have regressed, actually. Uh, we are focusing on highly dubious products. Uh, and we're not moving forward from Islamic banking, which I think is an oxymoron. Again, something that I'd like to talk about.
Yeah, really fascinating. And um, uh, and do you think that there's like a do you think there's a skill set gap at all in the industry or no? There is now a skill set gap. It wasn't before. About ten years ago, there was very there were very many highly qualified, technically capable people. Uh, because they fell out of the industry, because the big banks were no longer interested post the financial crisis, uh, you now have a, a pretty large gap. And that gap is starting to be filled by small Islamic fintech firms with people who don't necessarily come from uh, a traditional finance background. So you've seen a lot of Islamic fintechs recently where you'll have a great marketing and branding team, but that's it. Or you'll have a great tech team, people who are very good at software engineering, but that's it. Or you will have people who worked as conventional bankers, but that's it. So really, it's, it's very rare to see an Islamic fintech firm that has the right blend of skills across traditional finance, modern digital forms of it like crypto and DeFi, marketing, branding. Um, often I get people who come to me and say, I've had this great idea. Nobody else has had this idea. Uh, believe me, everybody's had all these ideas. They're, they're all, it's all about execution. Yeah, you have to have a vision, but you have to follow through on that vision. And, you know, uh, somebody can come to you and say, um, I've had this idea about, you know, doing a farm of rainbow unicorns. Well, that's lovely. How, how are you going to execute it? Do you have people who've done that before or know how to do it? I mean, you know, unless you, uh, what I see of a lot of Islamic fintech firms is a lot of, uh, people who have a great idea and they assemble around themselves, you know, legal infrastructure, tech infrastructure, marketing and branding infrastructure, but they don't actually have the person who can build the engine and the chassis. If this was a Formula One race team, it would be like having a Formula One race team, all the fancy livery and logos and marketing and branding and legal and IT people, but nobody can actually build a car. And that's what we've got at the moment. So we have this skills gap. We don't have the people who know how to build the car because they fell out of the industry 10 years ago and they were disillusioned with people like me. I've somehow kept my foot in the door and continued to work with in fintech firms. Um, so I hope that there's others. Uh, you know, we, you've interviewed a number of these people on your show and they are, and I hope they're able to give something back to the community. Um, and I see that through various initiatives like um, I formed the UK Islamic Fintech panel a few years ago. Uh, Richard Thomas has formed the halal, the hybrid halal economy Islamic finance group recently. These are all designed to solve policy issues at the government level and at other levels, HMRC and so on, and help to bring the, uh, the entities, the ecosystem together and nurture it. And unless we do that on, in a collaborative way, we will not succeed because we are too small, we are underfunded, and we have that skills gap. Do you think that Islamic finance industry as it is today, which I guess really is the majority of it is the big Islamic banks, uh, there's a few investment houses knocking around and then there's you know, smaller fintechs. Um, and uh, so we, we, I guess we're mainly talking about the Islamic banks here. Do you think that there are, what's the percentage of good actors versus bad actors in that, uh, in that bucket? And uh, do you think- It's gonna get me into trouble now. Well, you can say a percentage, right? And then you don't have to name names. <laughs> I'm going to name names. <laughs> but the, but what, what's interesting, I, I want to understand is like, do you think it's the people that don't have, have the right or wrong intent? Or do you think it's a systemic thing? Or do you think it's both? It's both, yeah. First of all, the system is rotten. And we know that. We know there's a, you've written a, what, a very extensive white paper on this. Um, we know that the financial system, monetary system is broken. Um, and we cannot, I believe we cannot fix it 
with our current levers that we have in yeah. the economy and in, in government. Um, but also, specifically within the Islamic finance industry, we have too many bad actors. Unfortunately, the banks are bad actors because Islamic banking is an oxymoron. You cannot have a bank, which is a deposit-taking institution that creates money through the act of lending, which is the very definition of riba. however you dress it up, whatever contractual structures you use to override that, along with the phrase Islamic. You cannot have Islamic banking. You can have a non-bank financial intermediary, which is perfectly halal, 100% fractional reserve, something that you talk about and I agree with. But the moment you make it fractional reserve, every time a bank takes in a pound in deposits and lends out 10 pounds, it's created nine new pounds. Where does that money come from? It's literally the press of a keystroke on a computer. It's digital. It's been created from nothing. So that's riba. That's a surplus. That's an excess. That's money that came from nothing. Uh, we have to um, stop believing that Islamic banks are our future. And unfortunately, I was a champion of Islamic banking everywhere, and particularly in the UK, for many, many years. It's only recently that I've decided, well, frankly, I've, I've had enough of this. I've tried very hard. Mm. I've tried very hard to advocate for you guys. You, you lack the vision and you lack the ability to execute anything that's outside your, narrow, your own narrow vision. So it's time to focus my attention on uh, dynamic entrepreneurs who have the vision, who want to do something real, who want to do risk sharing, real economy financing on a fully reserved basis. Uh, and that is, that's pure equity based. That's what Islamic finance should be. Uh, and we haven't done that. The banks continue to replicate conventional debt-based products. Mm. But do you, think, how, do you think that's because uh, there's a lack of imagination and they, they don't know better, for, for lack of another phrase? Yeah. Like they're, not, they're not you. They're, they're probably someone who doesn't, who, who come in from conventional banking. Yeah. And they... Why are shareholders hiring them? That's what I want. I, I don't know the answer. Why are they hiring them? Why would you as a shareholder say, I have $100 million burning a hole in my bank account and I want to create a bank in London and call it Sharia compliant? And then go out and hire some random conventional banker who set up a mortgage company 10 years ago. Does that guy know anything about Islamic finance? Does he walk in my shoes? And does he know the Somali community in Birmingham, Bangladesh is in East London? No, of course not. You know, his only brush with Islam is once a year he'll sit for an iftar dinner, you know, with his staff, you know. Yeah. And occasionally he'll forget not to have a meeting at 1 p.m. on a Friday. Yeah. Right? I mean, come on. You know, yeah. why are shareholders hiring these guys who, A, don't have the networks in our communities, in our industry, and B, lack cultural affinity with us, and C, lack the technical capability to execute? I'm going back to the Formula One example. If you can't build the car or the engine, yeah, yeah. why are you there? I agree. So, like, but I, so what I would say to that, I, I completely agree with what you've said. Uh, I would say that it's this, uh, this bad decision making, because ultimately this is a decision by shareholders uh, in Middle Eastern countries that's, that's happened. I think it's, uh, it's not out of evil intent, but just because they don't think in, in a certain way, and they've mm. made suboptimal decisions, yeah. I feel. And then, of course, there's this overarching issue about yeah. the system as well. Yeah. So let's come back to the idea of, are, are people you know, deliberately malicious? Do they intend to do the wrong thing? I, I think not. I think there's a lot of ignorance. Yeah. I think it's a shame that shareholders themselves have this ignorance and appoint people who not, are yeah. ill-suited to delivering a service to you and me. Uh, because I'm the buyer of the product, you're the buyer of the product. 
And yet, I don't want anything that the banks have to offer. I mean, this is very upsetting to me because I've spent almost 30 years now trying to make it happen and realize I can't make it happen from within the banks. I think partly the reason is they exist in a system that rewards people for consensual thinking, for agreeing that the fiat fractional reserve system is a good system and government has our best interests at heart. I don't believe either of those two, those two statements. Um, so they're not looking for people with vision. People like me are a dangerous radical. Uh, and hence why I don't get any work from the banks anymore. They're not, none of them are my clients. Um, so this is, I think, one reason. It's not, a, it's not a form of kind of deliberate malicious behavior. However, when you look at what we have normalized, what we as society accept as acceptable thinking, mm. what the establishment has taught us to think, it's kind of received wisdom, it's pre-speaking Latin. We quote the IMF on various things, the International Monetary Fund which I think is the manifestation of shaitan on earth, <laughs> right? This is an organization yeah. that professes to develop underdeveloped or help develop underdeveloped countries uh, and put in place programs to with some strings fix their, attached. Right, with strings attached, fix their problems, allegedly. And yet, the only empirical data we have suggests its sole purpose is, in fact, to exploit the global south for the benefit of the global north. It's a transfer of resources, that's all it is. And we think this is a good thing. We quote the IMF all the time, the World Bank. Yep. We say central bankers are doing this. We say governments have our best interests at heart. Oh, they're raising interest rates to control inflation, great. Did it work in the 80s? It didn't work in the 80s. We keep repeating the same mistakes, believing that these people we keep appointing, new politicians, new prime ministers, new central bankers, this time they'll get it right, and they never get it right. It's a perpetual uh, uh, kind of series of errors. So there's something wrong with the system for sure. And modern economics is a sort of religion, it's a dogma. It's just passed down, received wisdom. There's no science or maths to it. It's not empirically based, otherwise they'd quickly conclude their models are nonsense. They didn't solve 2007, 2008, dot-com bubble, lots of bubbles before that. We keep having boom-bust cycles. There's something clearly wrong with the economics that we study today in universities that is funded by large corporates. MBA schools, yeah. economics faculties have erased a whole swathe of economic history that we don't learn about. Nobody's taught Austrian economics, for example. We're not taught alternative systems. Islamic finance might be a module in you know, a handful of universities uh, in the UK and possibly around the world. But it's not some, the economic model is not something that's generally taught to people. No. If people were taught that economics is about ensuring a fair deal for everyone, regardless of how close they are to the money printer, i.e. the central bank, what we call the money spigot or tap, it's called the Cantillon effect. The closer you sit to the money printer, like if you're a banker or a very rich person, the more money you make in the short term. Because yeah. yeah, you can yeah. take that money that's created in QE, for example, and you can use it to buy stocks and real estate and so on. And, that will, that will increase your wealth. By the time it trickles down to ordinary people, it's lost a lot of value through inflation. And your wages haven't changed. So now you have a cost of living crisis for the majority of people. Yeah. And yet all we keep doing is changing the central banker or changing the prime minister or changing the finance minister yeah. and assuming the next one will get it right. You're never gonna get it right until you solve the system. So there's a systemic problem and there's a problem of bad actors in our industry. I'm also noticing, by the way, amongst systemic fintechs, but although, I, I, although I'm very happy that I do meet a lot of young, dynamic 
entrepreneurs who are trying to do the right thing. I'm also seeing a number of Islamic fintech firms that are focusing on extremely dubious product structures and labeling them halal and Islamic. And the one that I, I have the biggest problem with is commodity murabaha, or sometimes called tawarruq. It's not important what, exactly yeah. what that means. I mean, the analogy I would make is to contractum trinius. In the Middle Ages, as you know, the church banned usury. All interest was forbidden in Christianity. And financiers had a clever way around this. Instead of having a loan with interest, the contract that they would enter into with a borrower was three separate contracts, each of which was not an interest-bearing loan. But when you combined them, it had the effect of a loan with interest. And the church kind of turned a blind man to this because, frankly, each of the individual contracts was, was I nearly said Sharia compliance, <laughs> was compliant with church law. But together, you know, it was something else. It was called contractum trinius. And of course, we've come now, you know, hundreds of years later to the point where Christianity really has no, no meaningful view on usury. At least the church doesn't. Christianity does. But the church has no meaningful view on usury, which I think is a, a huge shame because Christianity and Islam have much in common here. So the same thing has happened in Islamic finance. About 40 years ago, our scholars approved <clears throat> the commodity murabaha, which is essentially our version of contractum trinius. Yeah. And they said, it's, we're approving this for now as an interim measure so that you can get Islamic finance off the ground and become commercially successful. But you must move towards purer risk-sharing structures, like sale and leaseback, for example. Uh, or investment into a business in which you share the profits and losses. This didn't happen because all the bankers did was they got lazy mm. and they lacked the vision and they lacked the skill set. And they said, wow, this is fine. Everybody's approved it. My credit traders have approved it. My legal people have, my compliance people have. Yeah, we're all familiar with this now. So let's just carry on with this. And for 40 easy, years, yeah. that's what we've had. And now the Islamic fintechs are starting to do the same thing. We've got a number mm. of people coming through saying, oh, I've got an SME financing platform, or I've got a real estate development platform mm. or whatever. And the underlying structure is the buying and selling of metals on a metal exchange somewhere. Yeah. What I urge everyone to do, if you are investing on an Islamic fintech platform, check the small print. Mm. If commodity murabaha or murabaha using the exchange of metals through brokers is mentioned anywhere, I warn people to stay away. Mm. Because that is highly dubious and that is our modern version of contractum trinius. And I want to eradicate it. Mm. So that is one of the solutions that we must return to the ideals of the Islamic economic model, which is trade. Yeah. We have so much in our scriptures about trade and what is halal and what is haram. It's very easy to replicate that uh, in finance. And that's what I'm focused on yeah. right now. So, um, and I want to get into, uh, I think there's, there's so many different themes that you just um, dropped there. Um, I think um, this might be a good point to actually talk about what does a truly Islamic financial system look like? I mean, you've, you've read my, my article, yeah. right? So you've yeah. got a sense of how I think about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm really keen to hear what you think. Um, and I think that the, the, I, I suspect we're going to broadly agree on the diagnosis. Uh, and I'm really interested to hear what your view of how we solve it will mm -hmm. be because I think that's where we might differ and yeah. I, I don't even know if I've got the right ideas yeah. myself. Um, I think on, like for example, on the, this topic of commodity murabaha, I, th I think the monetary policy aspect and the system as a whole, let's start with that and then I guess we can talk about like specific structures and things like that. Yeah, okay, so let's start on monetary system. Um, 
Something that I picked up in your white paper was um, we should work with central banks and governments to, you know, quote unquote, fix the monetary system. Uh, I disagree um, because central banks have had every opportunity to try and fix this and they never will. Um, it is, uh, what's the famous phrase? It is difficult to get a man to understand a thing when his salary depends on his mm. not understanding it. We're never going to make these people yeah. change. The same applies to economics, uh, academics, uh, perhaps even scholars, especially if they're paid by government. Mm. So I don't believe that tweaking monetary policy through central banks and governments is actually going to work. I think it's got to work through the people. And the people need to recognize and be educated that sound money is the one thing we lack in the world that would solve so many other problems. And if I was to reel off a list of things that it might solve, you might think I'm crazy. I probably am. It could solve climate change. You know, it could solve poverty. Uh, it could solve war. Now, at this point, people are thinking, you oh, know, this guy is absolutely insane. <laughs> but, but let me expand Please on that. Please let us know in the comments below <laughs> if you think. <laughs> let me expand on that. Um, we as human beings are greedy. We have high time preference. We don't like deferred gratification. And yet, clinical studies have showed that people who have deferred, who, who employ deferred gratification tend to be more successful in life. They study for exams, for example. We as Muslims should be the perfect example of low time preference people. Because we prepare for our akhirah. The dunya is just a, a passing transitory phase that we're trying to accumulate good deeds for our akhirah. We're the ultimate in low time preference people. During Ramadan, we fast for 30 days. We discipline our nafs. It's not just about not eating. It's about trying to be a good person, right? We discipline ourselves. We know that our bodies and our health and our planet are a gift from Allah that we're supposed to preserve, not destroy. Yeah, so today we have a, a system that encourages high time preference because when you have QE, quantitative easing, which is a, a complex subject, but you know, essentially we can call it colloquially money printing. The government prints more money. You have a situation where you have a greater supply of money uh, and that causes inflation. And because QE causes long-term interest rates to decrease, borrowing costs become cheap. So now banks are incentivized to lend you as much as, much as possible and consumers are incentivized to borrow as much as possible. So now you have a borrow, spend, consume, borrow, spend, consume model and everybody's doing it. You're all updating your iPhones every year, you're changing the car on your driveway every two years, you're doing refurbs to your house all the time and extracting equity from your house because interest rates are so low. So you're incentivized by this high time preference model. What if there was a monetary system that was anti-inflationary and therefore anti-riba? It would not encourage this constant borrow, spend, consume model, which is ultimately destroying the planet. We're not destroying the planet through one or two small isolated things like, oh, there's too many cars on the road or there's, uh, you know, or Bitcoin destroys the environment or which is, by the way, an absolute nonsense argument, which I'm happy to, to rebut later on. But the reason why we're doing it is because we're consuming too much. And we don't need to. We, we throw things away rather than fix them. In my father's generation, he tried to fix everything that got broken. I'm trying to keep that up in my generation, but I know by the time my kids, kids are doing the same thing that I'm doing, they won't do dad jobs like me. They won't be fixing fences and fixing the radio that broke and whatever. You know, they'll just be throwing away and buying a new one because that's the culture that we're all brought up in now. So that's a human problem. That's a social problem. We need to change it. We need to have a monetary system that nudges us in a different direction. 
So what if we had a, a what I call a sound money, which encouraged deferred, deferred gratification by being anti-inflationary, by being anti-riba, by being scarce, divisible, fungible, secure, portable, scalable, saleable across time and space. Once upon a time, we had the gold standard. Mm. In order to expand the money supply, you obviously had to extract more gold from the ground. Sure. And that means it grows at only sort of one, one and a half percent per annum. That requires proof of work. I believe a sound money requires proof of work. It, has, it requires labor and work to extract it from wherever it needs to be extracted, whether that's from yeah. the ground in the form of gold, or whether that's from uh, you know, computer algorithms in the form of Bitcoin. So when you have a monetary system that requires proof of work, it's worth something. Mm. Today, money is becoming increasingly worthless because we're printing more and more of it, so there's more and more of it in supply. Ever since Nixon removed the gold standard in 71 to finance the Vietnam War, we've had a state of perpetual war. Yeah. So I was saying earlier, sound money can fix war because you can't keep printing it. Once upon a time, nations could only conduct and wage war to the extent that they exhausted their own coffers, their own treasury. And then somebody had the bright wheeze of printing more money and forcing citizens effectively to deplete their wealth through inflation. Through inflation yeah. And now governments can finance war independently, uh, so, in, 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 perpetually. Yeah. So Harris, what, so you're saying, I guess in a punchline, uh, that central banks aren't it, right? That's, that's not the route to go down. And actually we need to go down what sounds like a crypto route like a blockchain-based crypto route. Yeah. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I, I hesitate with the words blockchain and crypto because the only single use case of blockchain that actually works is Bitcoin. And I don't believe in any other crypto. I think crypto, other crypto, other altcoins may have utility for purposes other than money. But as a money, whether as a medium of exchange or as a global reserve currency, I think only Bitcoin has the necessary characteristics and the network effect that so many people now have access to it and use it, that it, practically speaking, it can't be attacked. Its blockchain can't be attacked. Um, and I, I always hesitate whenever I'm in you know, conferences and panels where somebody says, yes, and I think blockchain is a great idea. And I say, well, where is it a great idea? Hmm. Why, why is it a good idea? Oh, because it's efficient and fast and cheap. No, it's not. It's inefficient. It's slow and it's expensive, deliberately. Hmm. So let's reset our thinking of what blockchain means. Um, and the analogy I always use is the Quran. Because the Quran is on a decentralized ledger, which is millions and millions of people around the world who have memorized it hmm. from start to finish. Every note, every punctuation mark. So when you're praying tarawih in the mosque in Ramadan, and the imam misses a beat, he misses a letter, he can be corrected by maybe three or four or five people in the front row who themselves also mm. have memorized the Qur'an. Yeah. They are the nodes who memorize the entire ledger of the Qur'an. And they are there to correct if somebody makes a mistake. And they've gone through a proof of work, the effort required to memorize from start to finish. You can't just replicate that overnight. It takes mm. years and years of study. And that's why the Qur'an is protected. It's decentralized. Yeah. There's no single copy of the Quran sitting in a glass box in Makkah that we all refer to when we see a mistake in our own. No, we, we know it's right because of oral dissemination. So 
Blockchain, at least as far as Bitcoin is concerned, works in a, a similar way. We have a series of millions of nodes around the world that so, have so replicated. Should, so are you saying we should go to Bitcoin? Is that, I'm, is saying, that I'm saying the only solution I have seen that gets close to and surpasses the idea of a gold standard, yeah. which was the, the currency of the Islamic golden age of uh, many empires before, and led to, and whenever we've had a gold standard, we've had long periods of stability, low inflation, technological progress, mm. because you had time and space to invent in arts and science and mathematics. Um, you have time and space for human beings to become creative uh, and to have low trade barriers and to trade with each other. So a global currency standard that is yeah. sound money, that is, that is low inflation, that is inherently anti-riba because yeah. it requires proof of work. You can't just print it, yeah. which is what banks do. Whenever they lend you money, they've created nine new pounds versus yeah. every one pound you've deposited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's because they can. Do, and do you think that the Bitcoin is better than gold? I do, yes. Gold is not portable. Mm. Uh, gold is not as easily divisible. Gold is easier to counterfeit. I mean, we could digitize all of this, You right? could digitize it. You could have gold backing. You could have a crypto that is backed by gold. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not averse to that idea. Um, I, I, but I, at the same time, I'm, I'm confused as to why Muslims think that gold is the only Islamic currency. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's not the case as far yeah. as Fiqh is concerned. I'm not, I'm not concerned about that yeah. argument. I'm more just concerned about, from a consistency perspective, we've yeah. got thousands of years worth of yeah. gold. We yeah. kind of know it works. Yeah. And Bitcoin is still, is still new. Yeah. You would have to implement a layer on top of gold to make it yeah. work. And we already have Bitcoin working on that now. So we've got secondary protocols like uh, Lightning Network. So we now have a, a sound money, which is called Bitcoin, mm -hmm. which has many attributes which are superior to gold. Um, and we're building on top of that so that we can actually transact in it. So what, um, So my, my view on this would be that, um, in principle, I'm kind of agnostic as to how we solve the problem as long as it gets solved. My thought process was that human beings uh, are are not like you in most cases. They're not rebels, uh, and people like to follow mm. established systems. Mm. Um, and 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 I think systems can uh, every, every so often, but very rarely, systems can change quite dramatically. Mm. And that happens through like a set, very serious amount of pressure mm -hmm. put on them, either through uh, exogenous forces mm -hmm. that just cause that to happen. Or internally, the, you know, the, the populace rises up and says, we want something. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, one has to be careful how exactly one puts it. Mm. But I think my view would be that the central, like, the central banks, um, because they already have existing structures and lines of attack, mm. um, they would actually be like, what would, what would you have to do if um, you didn't have them? And you said, all right, we're actually going to just go entirely around them. Mm. Um, you would have to create those systems of power mm. uh, to be able to implement what you yeah. want to implement. And and so the my, uh, I guess the punchline on my side is actually what I'm what I would lobby for is for the individuals, for for the community as a whole, to put pressure on these central bankers or these governments to really change. Yeah, they will use the argument of digital money to create their own digital money, which will be CBDCs, yeah. which are central bank digital currencies. So we're hearing Rishi Sunak talking about Bitcoin yeah. or whatever he's calling it now, um, which I think is the most dangerous manifestation of fiat money possible. Because now you will have a form of money which the government can still continue to print and, track. and devalue. 
But this time, they know exactly what you bought in which store, which book you mm. borrowed from the library, when, what are you reading, what are you thinking, what are you liking on social media. They can track everything now. And we come from a community that has been increasingly demonized in this country in the last 10 years. Yeah. And the last thing I want is to give them even more power over my movements and know as much as they can about me. Yeah. So I want us to move away from centralization. That's what but centralization perhaps, is. But perhaps, Harris, the, the, the point there is that perhaps we just need to put even more pressure on uh, the central bankers or uh, the government to actually come up with something that is radically different to what they are currently but, doing. Well, we have that. So why do we need them? You mentioned the, the phrase rebel. Hmm. I mean, as Steve Jobs said, here's to the rebels. Uh, he created something that nobody knew they wanted. Hmm. Right? He didn't go to focus groups yeah. and say, what kind of phone do you think we all need? He just went yeah. out and created it and says, hey, here's an iPhone. And everybody goes, wow, I didn't know I needed that, but I really need it now. Okay, but there's yeah. always been rebels in history. Hmm. The best example is our own Prophet He was considered a, a, a madman by the leaders of the Quraysh, yeah. by the people of Mecca, and there are two billion of us who follow him. Yeah, but I would say even like in the prophetic example, he, he specifically prayed for one of the two Umars who were influential to join him. Yes. Uh, he brought on the leadership of the various different tribes through yes. marriage. Yes. Uh, like he, he, yes, he, he pragmatic, did diplomatic. Yeah. yeah, he was diplomat, a strategist, yeah. absolutely. And, what and we should is, be similarly strategic yeah. and diplomatic. I'm very happy when, when, for example, people like Richard Thomas say, let's create a hybrid group uh, you know, to bring together the halal economy and the Islamic finance and, and to solve policy issues. And yeah. now we're working with the establishments. We have HM Treasury and Bank of England and so yeah. on. Uh, and yes, that's a useful dialogue to have. But real change will not come from there. We just want them to accept that the people are asking for something, are clamoring mm. for something, and we'll do it ourselves. Bitcoin has happened uh, by itself. It didn't yeah. require a central bank to implement it. Um, but we're still quite a way off, aren't we, from that being actual fiat currency that we, we transact in. And, and I think the, the reason is partly because, as I said, people follow right and they like stability they like yeah. safety security yeah. someone to tell them that this is okay maybe we need the scholars to do that mm. maybe we need the scholars to come out and say i've looked at this bitcoin thing and it's the most islamic form of money i've ever seen mm. sometimes they'll listen to that the problem is they're not very savvy when it comes to financial and monetary issues they're just yeah. not very well trained in these things or they'd prefer to sit on the fence and see which way it goes which is Frankly, yeah. not very brave, let's be honest. So I, I agree with what you're saying, but I don't think Islamic scholars can... I don't think it's their role to necessarily replace what really would be some kind of government, right? Uh, I don't it's not government, though. They're, they're opining on something, and uh, the people follow what they say. So they have a responsibility in society. They have a social yeah. standing. People look to them and say, what did Sheikh so-and-so say about this issue? Oh, he said that? Oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it then. I'm not going to yeah. ask any more questions. I think it's, it's more that uh, it, it, people won't articulate it as this, but I think it comes down to um, this is our money. We really care about this, right? Mm. This is the, the thing that is, holds value for us. And we, want to, we don't really want to entrust it into a system where we, we are a bit concerned about yeah. You know, how does the digital landscape yep, work? Sure. Who controls these yep. apps and that sort of thing? So, so maybe what we're looking for is an accommodation whereby the government says, look, we won't ban Bitcoin. We won't say that it's wrong. Um, but we will try and ensure that there are, there are safe custodians of your wealth. Because hmm. right now, a lot of Bitcoin maximalists will say, 
one of the great things about Bitcoin is self-custody. I am my own Swiss private bank. I walk mm. around with my mobile phone. I'm able to access my Bitcoin. Um, and that's a good thing. It's good to have possession of your own encrypted keys. Um, but it also means that, you know, my mother, for example, would never be able to access her, her Bitcoin if she owned Bitcoin. Mm. I mean, it's just too technically complex for her. Um, so I can see a market for regulated custodians of that wealth mm. who hold your encrypted keys. I don't personally like it very much. For me, a lot of Bitcoin is about decentralization and self-custody. Yeah. But I can understand why people might want that. So that's an accommodation that a government can help help us reach. Yeah. And do you think that there's something uh, to the idea that we, well, well, two ideas. One is you know, the, the positive money argument, uh, which I put forward in the white paper, which is kind Political of- Political money. Yeah, it's, it's more, we, we influence the government heavily enough and make sure that there are checks and balances where the, the printing of money is sat with the government that yeah. is actually a true agent of the people mm -hmm. and, and then they distribute that out through the yeah. economy. Um, so that's one idea I wanted to ask you about. And the second um, is, we'll, we'll get to the second. Yeah. Why don't we talk about I that? I don't believe that governments can be trusted to do that. <clears throat> I don't believe they can be trusted to be responsible. They will always look to the solution of printing money. <clears throat> and anytime you, you give them the power to print, I, I believe that they are, they're causing suffering and <clears throat> oppression to the people. So it's really important that we separate state and money. I'm a fundamental believer in the separate, just as state and law should be separate, state and money should also be separate. The famous example is Imam Abu Hanifa, who was flogged, imprisoned, poisoned, probably by the ruler, who mm. had asked him to become a judge for him. The governor of Kufa had asked mm. Imam Abu Hanifa to be the governor. And he says, why would I do this? You know, if he asked me to cut off the head of a man, would I have to oblige? Yeah. So he recognized that the law must be separate from state. And I also believe that money must be separate from state. And actually, we have our own prophetic example. You know the example of the companions who asked the Prophet ﷺ to fix prices in yeah. the market because yeah, yeah, yeah. prices were spiraling out of control. And he thought about this and he said, prices are in the hands of Allah. Yeah. He didn't want to be responsible for oppressing his people by setting the prices. They're, they're, he believed in a free market. Of course, there are checks and balances. Of course, there's protection of the weak, of the vulnerable. We, you know, modern, uh, modern constructs like the Mergers, Mergers and Monopolies Commission, or whatever it's called now, yeah, CMA, yeah. CMA, are, you know, they are, they are evolutions of a form of capitalism that we deployed 1400 years ago, mm. when the Prophet ﷺ said, don't ride out to meet the caravans outside the city walls, otherwise you'll manipulate the prices in the market. You'll mm. capture the market and you'll sell at a high price to people in the market. And that's a form of preventing a monopoly. So we have checks and balances that protect the weak and the vulnerable and ensure a functioning but free market. Yeah. Well, what I would say as a counterpoint to that is, um, sure, you know, governments are the, one of the, the, the least trustworthy things these days. But the counterpoint could be that you're putting power in the hands of someone else. That, that's the inevitable reality. Are we, who, who are you putting hands in the power of? Let's uh, say we have a Bitcoin monetary system hmm. and prices are allowed to rise and fall naturally according to free market forces. Hmm. And you have regulations in place that assure consumers of certain types of protections, such as anti-monopoly. 
prices are now being dictated by a free market, the invisible so hand. What I, what I mean by that is the uh, like so you uh, you've got the the central bank which currently does its mini money printing stuff, and then the government and the the establishment is the veneer through which we interact with this printing press, mm. and we trust this veneer, uh, and we believe okay what it's saying it must work. Yeah. We don't really understand the printing yeah. press. And I think the same is the case with Bitcoin or any other proof yeah. of work. But, but it isn't because who is, who's the CEO of Bitcoin? Who so, runs it? So what I'm saying is that you've got this technology, but actually the reality is when you interface with it, mm. you're going to be interfacing with it through some kind of wallet, through some kind of media, yeah. through some, some people like you who are influencers or leaders. And so the question is now, um, still for the average person who doesn't really have the ability to look at things, mm. Um, who do I trust? Okay. And so let's, yeah. let's talk specifically about Bitcoin. Who can influence the price of Bitcoin? Presumably the whales, these people who hold yeah. huge wallets uh, of large amounts of Bitcoin. We've seen virtually no movement in those wallets. Mm. Maybe those people are dead. Maybe, maybe the wallets are dormant for other reasons sure. we don't know. But there has been no overt price manipulation. Any attacks on Bitcoin have been rebuffed. Yeah. Whereas there are a small group of people who do control fiat currencies. Yeah. So I agree with Liz Trust yeah. and Kwarteng come to yeah. power and suddenly the pound drops to 106 yeah. because they're basically uh, massively incompetent individuals. Yeah. And I, I, what I'm saying is, how can society allow a small group of individuals, especially a government as we see now in the UK, who have been shown to be very populist, in my living memory, I can't remember a cabinet as low quality as we've yeah. seen in the past few years. How can we allow these people to So I, I completely agree with this, Harry. Yeah. So the, the, my point that I'm making is that, yes, let's assume Bitcoin or gold is just a cleaner, more effective, more efficient like money system. Mm. Um, what I'm saying is in practical reality, uh, in order to get mass adoption, Human beings, all of us, we just like we don't compute everything in our yeah. heads. We just kind of take things for a given. Yeah. Like we go to a doctor, we assume that they know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is the case with money. And and I think with money, it's particularly important because that's where the value is held. So my my question is, I feel like from a practical perspective, we need to either get the establishment that is around Bitcoin yeah. to be as trusted yeah. as the government. Yeah. Or the government kind of needs to become different and yep. become the establishment around so Bitcoin. So I, I think what's happening right now is kind of interesting because if you remember about five, six years ago, Jamie Dimon, who's the head of uh, JP Morgan, yep. uh, said that Bitcoin was a scam. And I think he also said he would fire any traders who were dealing in it. Oh, really? That's yeah. Uh, and now JP Morgan itself is, is offering Bitcoin-related services in the yep. wealth management division. So he's kind of changed his tune there. I think over time, the establishment are starting to change their tune. Yeah. We've, we've heard about two Bitcoin ETFs that are being launched uh, and uh, are in the approval stages with the SEC, I believe. Um, so the establishment is, is starting, not only the financial institutions, but also regulators and, and government authorities are starting to recognize that maybe there is something here in Bitcoin that we can accommodate. So I think the push from the people has translated into a push from financial institutions, which hopefully one day will translate into a push from government and central banks. Do I care what central banks actually think? Well, this is, this is the death knell for central banks, right? If you have a sound decentralized money, central banks don't need to exist. Yeah. So they will push back on this. That's and the right. World Bank will push yeah. back on it, and IMF will push back on of it. Of course, yeah, right? of course. It's their job not, not to believe in this stuff. 
mm. which is why I believe the IMF is a, <clears throat> is a manifestation of shaitan on earth. Yeah. Because by its actions, I see that it does some incredibly oppressive things to the world. I think, I actually think you're completely right. I think it's like this, uh, it's the, the, the how of how we do this, which is interesting to me. Because what we're calling for here, ultimately, is complete system overthrow, yeah. right? It's just taking the people who have power currently right now yeah. and changing that. Yeah. Um, and I can get behind that. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I think uh, in order to get there, there's, you know, it's a very like, it's a very careful process Correct. that you're going to probably have to work. And, and if um, you were to do it overnight, I mean, you'd have societal upheaval. Yeah. Um, and that's not good. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to have a, a bloody revolution. Mm. Um, if we can implement that change in a gradual, accommodative way, then fantastic. That's the ideal. Uh, and that's why it's good for, for example, when I work in MySpace and Islamic FinTech, that I, I work with the establishment, I work with government yeah. uh, departments and so on. But eyes on the prize. You yeah. had a very nice phrase, which I actually wrote down from your white paper. What was it? You said, uh, yeah, proposing a vision and striving towards it is a prophetic and Islamic methodology. I 100% agree mm. with that. Honestly, I think that we've got this vision in mind. We need to be diplomatic and strategic. Yeah. There is a way that we can do this. We need to accommodate and work with the parties who are yeah. already in charge and bring them to our point of view. But there will be some parties within that group who will push back. Yeah, And that I will agree. be, in this case, central bankers. Agreed. And I, I feel like this is the conversation that is we should be having. Right. Right. Where both of us are aligned in terms of we need... we. This is not right. Yeah. We need to get somewhere. Yeah. And, and we're actually talking you know, practicalities yeah. in terms of, all right, what do we actually do yeah. to get there? Um, where, which I think is very different to conversations about the status quo. And like, how do we solve this to maintain the status yeah. quo, which I think is, is like yeah. not a very interesting art, uh, question. The other, the other um, area I want to discuss was around uh, proof of work itself, right? You've got gold. Uh, you've got Bitcoin. Let's set those two up. And... The, the kind of work that is needed to be done there is, is okay, but it's not that productive, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you, with gold, you, do, you need to do some mining, yeah. and with Bitcoin, you need to do some yeah. algorithm solving. Um, do you think that there's scope for thinking about like a proof-of-work system that is somehow value additive to the world as well? So I, I think what you're saying that intrinsically gold itself is just a basically shiny metal. Yeah. This has no real, I mean, it has some industrial use, yes. Uh, Bitcoin, even less so. It has no use other yeah. than as a form of money. Um, and I guess what you're asking is the effort that you go through to extract it from either the ground or a computer, it's, is it worth anything? I think it is. I think the fact that it helps to secure the ledger it helps mm. to secure the existence of this thing that we use as a store of value and a medium of exchange is in itself beneficial. Um, because once we have secured a form of money, we make it valuable and we make it worth something to, to exchange between us. And if we didn't have that usage of energy and mm. that usage of work, it would not be worth anything. Yeah. Well, what about if we had, I feel like, I, I think I saw a cryptocurrency that was based on like running or something. <laughs> Can you imagine if you, if the, if the thing that got you more. It's like a Black Mirror episode. Like cryptocurrency is you just running laps. Yeah. And then you'd have just entire nations. Yeah. That would be incredibly fit. <laughs> Kenya <laughs> would be the world leader. Yeah. Kenya <laughs> would be the richest nation on, on earth. 
<laughs> overnight. Yeah. You've just got people who are just, instead of like, you've got warehouses full of, uh, you know, computers. Yeah. You just got people doing labs. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a bit far-fetched for me, but uh, yeah. But, but yeah. I mean, your proof of work could take many different forms, couldn't it? Because the thing that got me thinking about it was the, your Quran analogy. Yeah. Because the proof of work of the Quran is actually something that is, you know, blessed spiritually. Yeah, correct. Um, yes. So, yeah, there could be something there. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about the whole, um, uh, you know, Sharia compliant structure side of things? Because I, I think that the conversation we've had is actually the, the more fundamental question. Um, and everything else is kind of, uh, you know, a sideshow yeah. to this, really. Um, because the Islamic banking industry, the Islamic finance industry is, is, a, is a tiny industry. And, and I feel like the, the innovation that we have been talking about is not really to anything to do with Islam specifically. It's, it's much more global than that. Um, and and, and I, of course, as someone in the Islamic finance industry and yourself, I think we'll have a viewpoint on it and we should, we should discuss that. Um, but do you think that, um, but do you agree with that as a, generally, as a, yeah. as a conclusion? Yeah, firstly? Generally, yeah. I mean, is, it, is there a specific thing that you want to focus on there? Um, yeah, so I think uh, now having you know, agreed on that, um, on, uh, on the Islamic financial structure, so my, my thought on this is that we're not happy with, let's say, Sharia rappers, we're mm -hmm. not happy with commodity murabaha, uh, we're not happy with the Islamic banking system really just being based on the same technology as a conventional banking system, mm -hmm. which is the real issue here. Um, and, we, and, and my view is that we should uh, minimize, uh, I, I, I actually wrote the article a lot more radically or a lot more aggressively initially, mm -hmm. where I had, it, I had it like kind of very removed. Yeah. Um, but I actually then tempered it back after um, thinking about it, after talking to a few people as well. And the, the reasoning behind it was um, that I think that there is some scope for um, certain structures, uh, particularly, let's say, commodity murabaha, even, even though I, I dislike to say it, Sharia rappers, mm -hmm. I think there is a space for yeah, I think there is as well, by the um, way, yeah, for, for and, rappers, yeah. Uh, but I think that where we've gone wrong as an industry is uh, that we take them as an end point. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, for example, for commodity murabaha, for myself, I would say that if you, you as a uh, player are dealing with, let's say, some kind of debt finance, uh, and you're, you're, that's kind of really the only op uh, option you have at the moment because of the tax system, fine, but make sure that you are actually on a clear path Correct. to exiting that. Correct, yes. And if you're not, then you know, that's not yeah. good enough. Yeah, and, and if I can name one Islamic fintech that I feel is doing that, I would mention Nestor. Um, you guys all know Mohammed Paracha, for example, yeah. very good guy, uh, very knowledgeable, very experienced. Uh, you know, he and his team in Eunice, for example, recognize that because of the tax legislation, at the moment they're only able to offer their product on a commodity murabaha basis. Yeah. But simultaneously, I know that they are working on a, let's call it purer structure, uh, and working with HMRC to allow them to implement that. Which I think is a perfect demonstration of, you know, uh, eyes on the prize, have a vision, follow through, work on it. Don't stop at Commodity Murabaha, uh, because that's only an interim measure to get you off the ground. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. And, uh, and you know, we, we've done a bit of work with people at Offer, who I know are having similar kind of conversations and, 
do the similar kind of pushing. So I, I, I like to see that uh, in the industry. Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, about your experiences with uh, Islamic scholars mm -hmm. and Sharia rappers and commodity murabaha, particularly in the Middle East, mm. where I feel like it's kind of indefensible at this stage. Yeah, the scholars are not generally, there's not much demand for structured products and, sorry, let me rephrase that. There is demand for structured investment products, but there's not much supply of these complex Sharia wrapper, total return swap, yeah, yeah. derivative type products, because the banks don't have the technical capability to produce them anymore because those people are sort of, have they gone, they've gone elsewhere. Retired, yeah. Yeah, but as far as commodity Muramaha is concerned, probably 90% of all financing <clears throat> business by which I mean debt, mm. is being done on a commodity Marabaha basis by Islamic banks worldwide, <clears throat> which is a travesty. I mean, it, it's, it's horrendous. It's as if the entire industry effectively has accepted that we just do this fake transaction mm. and call it Islamic, and give it an Islamic label. And here in the UK, the penetration rate of Muslim households uh, by an Islamic bank is 2%. Mm. Uh, that's my own number, um, which is horrendous. We know that riba is one of the seven most heinous sins, and yet we've completely normalized it. Uh, and only 2% of the households in this country have an Islamic bank account. Hmm. How is that even possible? They've got a monopoly position. It would be a, a slam dunk no-brainer to bring, to bring these customers, yeah. and they didn't do it yeah. because they lacked that vision. And they went down the commodity Murabaha route, and Muslims are not stupid. Yeah. You know, they look at that and say, well, I'm not understanding how this can be Sharia compliant because it looks like you just crossed out the word interest and wrote profit and you're just charging yeah. me more for it. It doesn't look very ethical to me. Yeah. So, you I know, mean, the, so in the UK, I thought that it was a lot more diminishing Musharraka, right? Than, I mean, the, the mortgage products uh, have now, obviously, post the, the tax legislation, yeah. have moved towards diminishing Musharraka, which I suppose is a good thing. But of course, fundamentally, it's still based on mm. um, uh, a, a fractional reserve system. So yeah. it's a bank. It takes in deposits. It lends out more than it takes in deposits. Yeah. And therefore, it's creating new money. And therefore, that's basically riba. Yeah. So we can call it diminishing Musharraka and Ijara. And we can have all sorts of nice mm. wakala and you know whatever structures. Yeah. Ultimately, Underneath it is a it's fractional a reserve bank. system. Yeah, still a bank. You're a bank. So the question I have then is that, is this even a co conversation worth having, right? Um, because uh, it's still a bank. And yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm so disillusioned that I, it's probably a bit of, goes both ways. They won't work with me. I won't work <laughs> with them. Um, I, you know, it's, um, we see some, uh, players in the market, people like FIDA, uh, an example of PFIDA, used yeah. to be primary finance. FIDA are an example of good actors, very good actors, mashallah. Mm. I mean, these are uh, practicing solid guys uh, who had a problem, a financial mm. problem they needed to solve, and they created that solution, sure. which is a, a debt-free home financing product. Mm. Uh, and it, it's an excellent product. Um, I hope, inshallah, it becomes commercially successful. They have had a very successful fundraising round. Uh, and it's a good example of grassroots activism demonstrating directly to the people that here is a better way of financing your homes in a halal, uh, ethical way without getting involved in debt or riba. Hmm. And the community has responded. They've raised a lot of money. They have liquidity capital. They have operational expenditure. Uh, and I, I think that's a, a, 
an example of, mashallah, very good success, and I hope Allah gives him continued success. Um, and that's away from banks. That's away from fractional reserve institutions. I, I'm now so disillusioned with the banking sector that um, I, I honestly couldn't care less what happens to people. Hmm. Would you think now, coming back to Haris, the individual, Kabzi, the individual, me, the individual, what should we be doing? Because the reality is we need to have a bank account yeah. somewhere. Um, and the reality is we need home financing, yeah. which is like the only scale providers are currently the Islamic banks. What, what, what do you think is the pathway that us three should be treading? Yeah, I wrote some notes on this, actually. I think there's a number of things that we can do, actually. First of all, you know my views on Kamaraki Marabaha. Sure. And I stay away from that. Hmm. Even when I know that a player is moving towards a purer structure, I still won't touch the Kamaraki Marabaha. As far as I'm concerned, it's a modern version of contractum trinius. Hmm. The second thing is where you have an investment vehicle that professes to be risk sharing, but actually underlying it is a debt structure. I have a problem with that. Hmm. I don't like the label Islamic debt. I don't like Sharia uh, lending. Hmm. I don't like these labels. As soon as you use the words debt and lending, it has moved away from the intent of trade. Trade is halal, riba is haram. Now, I'm not saying that those things are haram yeah. at all. That's yeah, not what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying. I'm saying that they're disappointing. And we certainly don't need to use commodity murabaha. Hmm. Even when there's a tax issue or whatever, there are solutions, but people just don't want to work towards those solutions. As I say, Muhammad and Yunus yeah. at Nestor are, a, are an exception to that. They are working towards that solution. Um, so that, that's the first thing. Let's not normalize riba. Right, so in our pensions, for example, yeah. many of us will have bonds automatically allocated by our pension provider. Agitate, agitate mm. with our pension providers and say, I would like to have a Sharia compliant alternative. Do you have Sukuk portfolio? By the way, I think Sukuk are problematic as well yeah. because of the purchase undertaking. But you know, certainly there is sometimes an asset basis to that. I think there is a, there is a, a type of Sukuk that I'm creating now, which I'll talk about later, which I think goes further from that because it's true risk sharing is truly yeah. based on the underlying assets. But agitate with your pension providers, for example. Um, what else can we do? Yeah, use non-commodity Murabaha, non-bank fintech platforms. People like FIDA. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a, a debt-free non-commodity Murabaha home financing platform. There are one or two others, but unfortunately, I think a lot of yeah. a lot of new Islamic fintechs are falling into the trap of going down the commodity Murabaha route because they read some, some scholar had said it was okay and they don't know any better, so they carry sure. on. And that's a form of ignorance. Yeah. And if they know better, then honestly, I think that's, yeah. that's, that's pretty devious. So um, what about banking bill, Harris? So, I mean, a bank account is a Because I feel like all of these points are what is, still... what is a bank? What does a bank do? It gives me a bank account where I store my money. Yeah. So I can go to an electronic money institution. Don't earn any interest there. I can use a normal high street bank as long as I don't earn interest. Mm. I mean, I'd rather not because then I'm contributing to their business yeah. um, and allowing them to, to lend. Um, I, I need home financing. I can go to Wayhome, Stride Up, FIDA. Uh, I know that those are limited. They're small companies and you might get put onto a waiting list, but there, there are options available to you. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, yes, I accept that using a diminishing Mushara Kanejara from al Bank is better than nothing. Better than, in my opinion, going to uh, you know, a conventional mortgage with a conventional supplier. Sure. Others will disagree with me, 
uh, they'll say uh, any, anything that's based on fractional reserve has to be had on by definition. Hmm. And yes, it's, there is, that's money creation. And I guess yeah. there's an argument there. But I, I championed the Islamic banking industry for a long time hmm. because I felt it was better than going to the alternative. Anyway, that's, that's a, a debatable issue. Um, what else do banks provide? Well, I can go to Asset Manager, uh, mm-hmm. get my pension products from them. Uh, my own pension, by the way, is rightly or wrongly, is 100% invested in HSBC Amana's yeah. um, equity index. It does mean that I'm fully exposed to equities, which, yeah. is, not, which is not right for everybody. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, well, what do you think about the 33, 30% thing? Uh, it was an interim measure, wasn't it? Mm. And it's kind of survived apparently into perpetuity now. Yeah. Um, it's not a good thing, but I really can't see an alternative. How can you find uh, large liquid companies? Well, this is the thing. So I, so I think, Harris, that there are, um, I agree with, with you. And I think it's pretty clear that we agree on all the endpoints. Yeah. But I think that there are certain staging posts yeah. that if you get certain amount of conviction around um, the interim use of that thing, yeah. and there's clear boundaries around the usage, then I think you can move towards that end post. But the key thing is that you need to have uh, parameters around it, yeah. and you need to have clear like direction of travel. Yeah. Um, and I think the 30, 30% debt to asset ratio, yeah. market cap to asset ratio, yeah. is a classic example of that. Because you could say that actually, you know, what we should be doing is doing pure private equity yeah. with no debt yeah. and focus on that, yeah. which by the way, we are doing. Like, right. We want to push that yeah. as well. Um, but the reality is that right now, you know, there's a reason why scholars have allowed it. And, yeah. you know, scholars are you know, right and wrong many yeah. times, but I think they're probably right here. Um, but there needs to be, again, this, like, if, if we're not doing this stuff on the private equity side, which yeah. I think, by the way, you are doing yes. as well, which I think is great, then um, there isn't that impetus going yeah. on. Yeah. And, and I think the same thing around, let's say, things like commodity murabaha, yeah. even Sharia wrappers. Yeah. Commodity murabaha has been around for like 40, 45 years. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's time we all accepted that this is a nonsense and we have to stop yeah. doing it. Agreed. And I think that people who come into the market with it, I have a new Islamic fintech company and we're going to do SME lending. And, you know, here's our structure. And I look and I think, guy, really? What's wrong with you? You can think about why, it. Why did yeah. you do that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm doing something similar, which is launching an SME financing company, which is pure profit sharing. So we because issue these notes. You're thinking about it from first principles, Look, right? Everybody yeah. should do that. You should, don't put a halal label on it. I, I, I'm yeah. urging Muslims, please stop buying things with a halal or Islamic label without doing mm. the research. So that's what I'm doing with my own business now. I'm, I'm, I've launched a a company called uh, Cordoba Capital Market, which is CCM which finances medium-sized businesses, profitable, boring businesses, not yeah. speculative businesses, yeah, yeah. to finance their working capital by, by issuing notes, which is like a, a sukuk, yeah. which we call PPNs, profit participating notes. And we segregate a particular business activity or a particular asset that the investor has exposure to. And the company makes a profit against those assets, or maybe it makes a loss, but we try and do our due diligence much more carefully than a bank would do due diligence on a lending instrument. Yeah. We do a lot more in-depth than they do. And if it makes a profit, we share that profit with the investor through the PPN. That is converting the ideals of a trade-based Islamic economic system mm. into modern finance. That's what we all should be doing. Mm. And yet only a handful of people are doing that. Yeah. I, I, I think... Part of the reason is because the 
Islamic banks, they don't have the incentive to do that. No. Um, because they're earning, there's this equipment. They're earning well. Yeah. yeah, they've got their Mercedes and their kids mm. go to private school and why should they rock the boat? And, and, and I don't even know actually if Islamic banks, because I think this is ultimately a macro issue. I think all bankers, if they're operating within a system that incentivizes certain behavior, yeah. will just carry on doing Correct. that certain behavior. Exactly right, yes. Um, and, and I think we, we definitely need to move towards equity, but I think you know, you and I doing our thing uh, is good. Like mm -hmm. We certainly should carry on doing yeah. that. But ultimately, I think we need to be pushing for big change. Yeah. Uh, and that requires some kind of movement and that requires some kind of, well, education, but also pressure, yeah. very focused and specific pressure on, on key policy issues. Yeah. Which is why it's important to participate in all of these initiatives that, that access uh, government bodies like HM Treasury and HMRC and so on. Uh, and, you know, you and I should continue to do that. So, Harris, what, uh, what are your final thoughts uh, for, for the viewers out there who've been taken on this journey from the early 1990s all the way to today? Um, yeah, what do you want to leave them with? Um, educate yourself on uh, what, what is finance, what is halal finance. Your platform does a brilliant job, mashallah, of explaining that. So when we talk about things like commodity murabaha, that's the place to go and learn what is commodity murabaha. Um, that's the first thing, education. Second thing is don't fall for the scams that I keep seeing. And again, I'm not but that, that name that I mentioned earlier, I'm not specifically saying it's a scam, but it has all the hallmarks. And I see Muslims, are, they gravitate towards these things. And then I see on, on investor uh, chat groups on Telegram and whatever, and I, I, I observe a couple of these. You know, people are talking about this company and this company, and oh, this is a really interesting product, this is a really interesting product. Always have a look at the small print. Understand what is the structure that I'm buying into. Mm. Is it a debt-like lending product with a Sharia veneer on top of it? Or is it true profit-sharing, risk-sharing? Because that is the ideal Islamic finance model. That's the economic model that has been enjoined on us. So we need to strive towards real economy, risk-sharing principles. Brilliant. Haris, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, thank you for, for having, having me. Uh, for making the time for us. Um, and we'll, we will reconvene in 10 years' time hmm. in, the, in the new world. Inshallah. 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 Right. Jazakallah. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum.